Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. And I want us to take a look back at those passages we looked at last week, and we're gonna kind of continue the conversation of how does that power help us when it comes to the areas of our hurts and past wounds in our life. So let's look back at Ephesians chapter five, starting with verse 18, and here's how Paul begins this conversation, setting up for all that he's gonna say about marriage. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Now, this is not how most marriage books start. It's kind of an interesting way that the Apostle Paul begins this conversation. This idea of drunk means to be under the influence or to be under the control of wine, which leads to debauchery, a word that we don't use a whole lot anymore, but it means to disregard the consequences, to be reckless, right? And he's essentially saying wine is the most common thing in the first century, but anything that causes you to be reckless and not think about consequences, stay away from it. He says, don't get around that. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This word filled means leave no room for anything else to control you. Like, if you want to excess on something, if you want to go overboard on something, fill the cup all the way to the overflow, then do it with the Spirit of God, pursuing God, letting Him being a part of the influence of your relationship. That is the greatest thing you could do for your marriage. That's the greatest thing you could do for any relationship. And all these principles that we're talking about through this series, including today, don't just apply to marriage. Any relationship, any friendship, any dating relationship or engagement, or roommate situation, or partnership, or any of those kinds of situations, these principles still apply and become very powerful for us. The Apostle Paul here ends by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, he's setting up what he's going to say about marriage. He's setting up all that we need to understand about what a marriage covenant relationship looks like. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, he's helping us to see that a servant's heart towards each other is essential. And having a servant heart is the hardest yet most important function of being a husband or wife in marriage. It is so hard. The question is, why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult? Like, there are lots of obstacles that get in the way of a servant's heart. Lots of things that make it difficult and challenging. Let's talk about one of the biggest barriers that we are all going to face. We all hit, myself included. We talked about this a little bit last week. The biggest barrier to a servant heart is self-centeredness. Nobody wants to admit that they struggle with self-centeredness. This is putting ourselves before other people, putting ourselves even before God, putting ourselves first. It's putting ourselves at the center of our life, on the throne of our life, that we and only us make the decisions for how we're gonna conduct our life. And this self-centeredness really hurts us. And this self-centeredness not only hurts us, but it causes a blindness to begin to happen in our life. Self-centeredness makes us blind to our own self-centeredness. When you're focused on you, you don't really notice that you're only focused on you because you're focused on you, right? By its very nature, it blinds you to it. And here's another reason why that is, that the major factor for blindness in us 
is our past hurts. It's the stuff that we have gone through. It's the past wounds. It's stuff that all of us bring into marriage. And almost every marriage, you've got people who have bringing past wounds and hurts with them. And that may be going all the way back to your growing up years in your home. And maybe it was just a emotional coldness and indifference that you got from your parents. Maybe it was a full-on verbal abuse that you were told you were nothing, you'll never amount to anything, you're no good, whatever, somehow this communication to you hurt you and it was some baggage that now you're carrying. Sometimes the hurt wasn't from mom and dad, it wasn't from the home life or whoever raised you. It was from past dating relationships or past spouses that betrayed you, broke your heart, cheated on you, leaving you questioning, can I even trust the opposite sex? Can I ever trust a man or a woman again? And even what is more than that, we begin to have huge self-doubt after big wounds like that. Can I even trust my own ability to judge another person's character? I thought I was a pretty good judge of character. I trusted this person, and they hurt me. I don't know if I can trust myself or others ever again. And so they're fearful of commitment. This kind of woundedness causes that kind of fearfulness. And what's funny is that many times we're able to hide those past wounds and hurts, don't deal with them, until we get into marriage. Have you ever noticed this? Maybe you have friends. I'm sure this hasn't happened to you. You get a few months into marriage, maybe the first year or so, and there's the first big fight, right? And all this stuff comes out. You're like, whoa, 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 where was that? Who are you? You know, what, who did she become? Who did he become? Where is all this coming from? And our past wounds tend to sabotage our marriages, especially when conflict inevitably will occur. It's going to happen. That's when those past wounds tend to come out. And here's how they sabotage us. Past hurts cause, uh, prevent us from repenting, that is turning from our own personal sin, our own part that we played in the conflict, what we've done to hurt them. We don't want to repent. Our pride gets in the way, right? We don't want to repent. We're not very forgiving. We prevents us from forgiving or extending grace, second chances to other people. And let me just tell you, whenever these three things stop happening in a marriage or in a friendship or in a dating relationship or any other kind of relational connection between two human beings it is the beginning of the end okay even a partnership a professional part if you don't you can't repent you can't offer forgiveness and you can't extend grace to one another <laughs> it's like you just sucked all the oxygen out of the room there's only so long people can stick around for that it is difficult, it is painful, it's really hard. It's the beginning of the end. And also those past hurts can cause us to become self-absorbed, self-absorbed. And it really happens when we, we will constantly focus on our own pain at the expense of other people's pain. We're blind to the other people's pain. Now, let me just say something that might sound kind of mean, but 
Wounded people tend to talk about themselves a lot. Have you noticed this, right? People who've been through a lot of hard things. Again, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to be honest. It's true. It happens. They, they'll talk about it within the first 15 minutes. It's going to come up, what they've been through, what's been done to them, how horrible life has been for them, the, the griping, the complaining, the moaning, right? It's really easy to see in other people. This is super easy to see in other people, very hard to see in ourselves. I'll go so far as to say, we are the last to know it when it happens to us. Because we'll just, it, we're so self-indulged, so self-absorbed, we don't know it's happening. We just start talking about ourselves all the time. It creates a barrier to us being servant-hearted. It creates a barrier to us being able to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And, and I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but I've had a couple of different moments with close friends, even family members, where I can see the self-centeredness, self-absorption over past hurts is destroying either our marriage or their relationship with their family or whatever. It's pushing people away. And when you, many times, not always, but many times when you try to confront people about this, maybe you've had this happen before, when you try to confront somebody on their self-centeredness over a past hurt many times they will say that may be true will but you don't know what it's like you didn't go through this i did and they'll go on to tell you here's why i have to be and i don't have a choice and this is just the way it is in other words their wounds in their mind justify their behavior in their mind their wounds justify their behavior. The past wounds and the stuff I've been through exempts me from a servant heart. It exempts me from serving one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm off the hook because I have been through horrible, and we're not trying to downplay the fact that you've been through horrible stuff or people that you love have been through horrible stuff. But the question is, if you're married to a person like this, what do you do? If you are in a, in, a, in a family with a person like, what do you do? How do you approach this? How do you deal with this? If this is you, you're going, I fall into that trap. I do that to myself sometimes. I self-sabotage. What do you do? Well, there are two approaches to healing this condition that are given to us in our world today that I want to talk about today. The first one is given to us by our culture. And here's what culture will say, that if you're a person who's hurt and self-absorbed, you've been messed up because of mistreatment in your past, just work on raising your self-esteem. Like, don't worry about living for other people. You just live for you. You just do you. You just go out and live everything you got for your dreams. You make it all about you making you happy. You satisfy you. You make life about you. And if you do that, then you'll get healthy. And then you'll be well-balanced. And you'll, you know, you'll correct what's been messed up with you. But here's the problem with this approach. The problem is, with this approach, is that it assumes that self-centeredness isn't natural. It's only the product of mistreatment. As if to say that if you were, you know, not mistreated, that you would be completely selfless. But if we teach people to start living completely for themselves, only to consider their own dreams and only for their own happiness, it makes people become even more self-absorbed. And it might even turn somebody from an extreme 
self-inferiority complex to a self-superiority complex. I'm better than everybody else. Yeah, thanks, you helped me a lot. I'm never gonna serve anybody now. But here's the problem. As we all know, if you're in a marriage, you know this. Marriage doesn't work without self-denial. Marriage does not work if you can't figure out how to put the other person first. The marriages that stop doing that end. No marriage will ever be healthy when there's one person saying, I must be catered to because of all I've been through. You must do it my way because I, you, you know what I've been through? You know how hard life's been on me? And we're not trying to downplay the fact that you've been through hard times. It's just not a justification to cater to something that's only gonna poison your heart, hurt you, sabotage you, and downward spiral you emotionally and relationally for the rest of your life. That's not the way you were made. The Bible gives a completely different approach. The Bible says um, there's a different assumption that we need to begin about you. And we're not gonna deny the fact that what has been done to you is not horrible and awful and shouldn't have happened. But the self-absorption was not caused by mistreatment. Now, the self-absorption, like, had gas dumped on it because of the mistreatment. When you were mistreated and you were hurt, it dumped gas on the fire, it made it much bigger, but it's not the whole story. Here's what the Bible teaches us, is that their self-centeredness, all of our self-centeredness, it already existed before they were hurt. Before you were hurt, you and I struggled with self-centeredness. The Apostle Paul teaches it this way in the New Testament. He basically says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the thing that will heal this part of your heart and my heart. This is the thing that will cause a paradigm shift to happen at the most fundamental level of our heart. And when that happens, we now begin to be equipped to love in the way that we ultimately always desired that marriage could be. And here's how the Apostle Paul unfolds it in his second letter to the church in Corinth, starting with chapter five, verses 14 and 15. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. There's that idea of control or influence again, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that his love ought to be the controlling, compelling, motivating factor of your life, right? That should be it. And then he says, and he, talking about Jesus, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. You see, he's talking about a paradigm shift. He's saying, before we come to Christ, it's just a given. We're all living for ourselves. We don't, no one had to teach you as a little child to be selfish, right? No, someone who truly loved you, that parented you well, taught you how to be selfless, how to put other people first, how to share, how to be considerate, how to be polite, how to put, you know, hold the door for people, that kind of, we, we, we learned, we had to learn how to do this because we come out of the womb living for ourselves, he says, but now, we no longer live for themselves, but for him, him, Jesus, for who died for them and was raised again. He's saying it's a new paradigm that shift from living from yourself to living for Jesus Christ and living like Jesus Christ, being controlled by, motivated by his love, that it starts to pour out of your life. In other words, what he's saying is we stop letting the effects of sin guide our life. 
So from scripture, the essence of sin, let's talk about the essence of sin. This is all throughout the New Testament, Old Testament. The idea of the essence of sin is a uh, living for ourselves rather than living for God or for other people. It's, it, that's essentially what sin is. It's putting us first, considering only ourselves, and that always brings about ultimately pain and suffering. It doesn't accomplish what our flesh, what our deep down, like what we're hoping to accomplish there doesn't happen. It only, uh, it only muddies the water. This is why Jesus, when he's summing up the entire Old Testament, the entire law and the prophets, he says, the entire Hebrew scriptures, he says, they all hang on these two commandments, first and second. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40, he, he quotes it this way. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus is saying, these two commandments are, I want you to love and live for God rather than yourself. I want you to love and serve your neighbor's needs before your own this doesn't come natural, but it is something that the Holy Spirit can help you to do. To be empowered by the Holy Spirit can help you to begin to work this out. And it needs to work out even in your marriage. See, Jesus is helping us to see that even in the context of our marriages and our relationships and our roommates and any of those connections that we have with people, especially in marriage, when conflict happens in marriage, Here's what we need to do. We need to acknowledge our selfishness as a fundamental problem and treat it more seriously than you do your spouses. Whoa, that's heavy. Most people are not willing to do this. This is why most people don't find the marriage they ultimately would love to have. It requires us to say when conflict happens to acknowledge first and foremost, it's my selfishness. Like even in my marriage with Leslie, but I have to understand, first and foremost, my selfishness is the major problem that I need to deal with before I address hers. I need to deal with mine. It is the biggest enemy. It's the biggest cause for struggle in our marriage, starting first with me. And it's being willing to say, listen, Really, this is the only thing I have a access to or responsible for is my selfishness. She doesn't have access to it, right? And it's us being willing to say, I'm gonna treat my selfishness with the same seriousness that Jesus did and stop making excuses about it, but own it and say, this is the thing that's become an issue. You keep bringing up, hey, we need to talk about this, we need to deal with this, we need to, no, we don't, it's not a big deal, you're making too big a deal of it. You need to talk about it. You need to deal with it. And you need to own it. And I'm telling you, when you've got two people in a marriage, husband and wife, that are willing to say, I acknowledge that it's my selfishness that has become the fundamental problem of this marriage. And I'm willing to work on it and take it more seriously than your shortcomings, your selfishness. Now you have a recipe in the beginnings of a beautiful, powerful marriage that can last a lifetime. Now, what if you're sitting there and you may be sitting there saying, well, Will, what about me? Like, I'm the only one in this marriage, the only one in this relationship that is fighting for this. 
This is, even po- is this even possible for one person to unilaterally start the healing process? And I would say to you, yes, it is possible. I've seen it happen. Not easy, no, not easy at all. It is difficult. But here's how it begins. It begins with you first admitting to God, yes, God, I want to acknowledge that it's my selfishness that has become a fundamental problem in our marriage and I'm willing to take it seriously, more seriously than theirs. And I would say for you to even go to your spouse and admit that to them. And here are the things. Here's the thing I'm gonna begin to work on, and I'm gonna begin to change, because I see it as a reflection or a manifestation of my selfishness in our marriage. And when you do that, it won't happen overnight, but I've seen it begin to change the other spouse. That in time, as they see your attitude and your behavior begin to change, it does something to soften and warm the heart of the other person. Even if that other person says, I'm not even a believer. I don't even believe any of this stuff. I don't even believe in God. It doesn't matter. I've seen God use it to begin to draw that other person to him. And that in time, when they see you really taking it seriously and really living this out, it will begin to open their heart to deal with their own faults, shortcomings, and selfishness that they've got going on too. Because now you've created a safe place for them to get honest as well. Now let's talk for just a minute about where Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Let me give you a definition of what that means. Spirit-filled selfishness or selflessness, it's not thinking less of yourself. In other words, it's not devaluing you, it's, uh, but it's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not devaluing yourself, it's just saying, I'm gonna stop making me the focal point of my life. Some of the happiest, most well-adjusted, um, healthiest people are people that hardly think about themselves. They're always thinking about other people. They're just, it just, it's just naturally the way we have been created to function at our best. And when two people do that in marriage, it's crazy how it can revolutionize marriage. But it's asking the Holy Spirit's help to say, Lord Jesus, help me by your spirit. Would you help me to not think less of myself, but just think of myself less and put God and other people first. To put God and other people first. And and Paul goes into this even more. I want us to take another look at Ephesians 5.21 where he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's define this word reverence for a moment. Reverence means to be controlled by. There's that idea again. To be under the control of, under the influence of. Overwhelmed by the wonder, the greatness of God and his love. This word reverence also is a kind of hearkening back to an Old Testament idea of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we're told in scripture. And this fear of the Lord is not like cowering, afraid that God is gonna come get you, but it's a kind of fear that is overcome with awe of God's greatness, of his beauty, of his power, his holiness, and that he loves you anyway. And he ran a rescue mission to come get you and to rescue you and your marriage. Incredible. And I love this definition I I came across this week. It's a word that can also mean fearfully 
beautiful. It's fearful, but it's also beautiful. It draws you in. He's so powerful. His holiness makes us keenly aware of our own sinfulness and faults and shortcomings, but also we're drawn to him because he's so beautiful and powerful and he loves us so much. It draws us in. It kind of echoes the same sentiment in 2 Corinthians 5.14. We read just a minute ago where the Apostle Paul says, for the, love, for the love of Christ, it controls us. It compels us, this word means. It urges us. It motivates us. It should. And really, it begs the question, if Christ's love is not motivating you, what is? Let's, let's back up for just a minute. And, and just ask the question. Let's get gut level honest before God. What is it that actually is motivating you in your life? The thing that you think about all the time, that you wake up thinking it motivates you. Like, let's be really honest. Not the church answer, but is it success? Is it like, uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's the main thing it motivates. It's a dollar amount. I want to make a certain amount of money. Like, I, I want a certain achievement. I, I want to prove, this goes all the way back to the hurt. I want to prove to mom and dad that I made something of myself. I want to show them. And finally, I can prove it to them and myself. Maybe it's proving to your peers that gain their love and respect, that you are somebody to be respected, to be admired, to be envied. Like, I wish I could be like, like, that's what you want, Right? It's so important for us to back up and ask what is motivating us because that tampers with our ability to love other people. Let me put it this way. If anything has greater controlling influence on you than God's love for you, then you will not, you will not be able to serve others unselfishly. You know why? You will serve what controls you. And so will I. Whatever that thing is at the core of our heart that is motivating us, it will get in the way of our ability to love selflessly the people that God's put in our life that he's saying, part of your reason for being here on planet Earth, part of your ministry on this world is to love these other people well, like I have loved you. And as long as you're loving something else and you're motivated by some other love or some other controlling influence in your life other than the love of Jesus Christ, then you will not be able to love them selflessly. You know why? Because you will be controlled by, you will serve the thing that controls you. You're gonna be under its influence, in other words. This is why it's so important for us to fully understand what does the gospel of Jesus Christ say to us about us personally and about our marriages? What does it say? And, and I know many of you are familiar with the gospel, this good news of Jesus that he came to bring us, but I want to explain it one more time because I think I want to clarify. I want to try, hopefully clarify as best I can. Let me start with what the gospel is not. The gospel is not you and I trying to gain a good record in this life, like live a good enough life that we can bring before God and go, God, look what I did. I've been a really good guy. Look, look, look. And God takes our good record and he says, okay, you've been good enough. You get into heaven. Like he saves us with our record. That is not the gospel. That is absolutely the opposite of the gospel, but it is, however, one of the most popular approaches that people have to God today, okay? I just want to clarify. The gospel says something very different. The gospel says Jesus has earned, not a good record, a perfect, perfect record. And through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he takes that perfect record and he gives it to us like it's ours for us to keep 
and to have. In other words, he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death for our sins we should have died. And through faith and trust in Jesus, we are forgiven of sin and we are counted as righteous before God, not by anything that we have done, but because of what he has done for us. Now, here's the really good news. Now, we are fully loved and accepted by the only one in the universe whose opinion actually matters. We gotta download that into our heart. Hold on to it because it is the thing that will give you the power to love the unlovely and to love your spouse on days when it is brutal hard and everybody's telling you, you ought to leave him, you ought to leave her, walk out, do something else and you are able to stay because Jesus didn't give up on you when you deserved it. It's beautiful. It is like fearfully beautiful when you begin to see what Jesus has done for you. It's amazing. And it is Jesus who makes us, makes you beautiful to God. What makes you beautiful to God? It's Jesus. What makes your spouse beautiful to God? It's Jesus. What makes us able to love other people selflessly? It's this. We love other people out of this idea that the Holy Spirit helps us to own this, live out of it, to reflect it to other people. That because God first loved us, though we can love one another. And I hope you begin to see that it's, it makes more sense now. Why did Paul begin a discussion about marriage by saying to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Because it is only when we are under the control of Jesus' love, his gospel, and his Holy Spirit in our life that we are able to stop complaining about our spouse until we're controlled by his love. We will constantly be complaining that they don't love us enough. They don't support us enough. They don't respect us enough. You know why? Because we are trying to get from them what we can only get from him. And he provides this for us through himself. He was willing to self-sacrifice so that we could be in a love relationship with him. And now he says, and this is the way I want you to love every other person, especially your marriage going forward. And here's the application prayer. I want you to pray with me today. It's simply saying, Jesus, where have I been excusing my selfishness? Where have I been using the excuse? Maybe a past hurt, something that I'm exempt I don't really have to apply. I don't, this doesn't really apply to me because of what I've been through. Where have you been using that as, a, as an excuse? Help me to serve my spouse slash others. Maybe you're not married today or not married yet. To be able to serve my spouse and others out of reverence for, love for you. I trust your gospel to save my life and my marriage. I trust your gospel. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.